Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording from our 2021 Passover Prep Learning Series. Thank you, uh, my dear colleagues, uh, and thank you everyone for joining us tonight. Uh, this has become a uh, another another part of our tradition together, uh, our Batei Knesset, uh, our holy communities. Uh, to look up and find each other as uh, Pesach is coming, just as we do when Tisha B'Av has arrived. And uh, we always dream of doing more than that, more than just the two times of the year, but but even this is, is uh, such a blessing. Um, so again, I thank all of, all of my dear, dear colleagues uh, from uh, Ikar and from Temple Betham, and uh, thank everyone for joining us tonight. Um, and uh, the uh, the piece of the Haggadah that I was uh, planning to talk about is the Makot, but not in the way that we ordinarily think about the Makot, the plagues. Um, what I'm interested in thinking about together with you is what I'll call the sequel uh, to the plagues, or the second act, or even, if you will, the second coming uh, of the plagues. And uh, I would even suggest that while we are uh, reciting the plagues at our Seder, uh, we can be thinking not only about how they appear in the first coming of the plagues, namely in Egypt, the way we normally understand them, but we can, we can think about and contemplate the message of the second coming of the plagues, which is what we're going to be looking at uh, for a few minutes right now. Uh, there is, uh, by way of introduction, a chapter of Psalms of Tehillim that we, we don't recite very often. It's Tehillim 78. I think that the reason we don't recite it very often is that it's all about how awful we were in the desert. How often did they defy him in the wilderness? Did they grieve him in the wasteland? Again and again, they tested God, vexed the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his strength. And the, and the Psalm actually lists uh, the blood and the insects, and the frogs, and the locusts, and the hail. And yet, despite all of this great display of divine power, there was something that we just didn't quite get uh, once we got out in the desert. It was something that we didn't grasp. And this failure on our part led to our questioning God and sometimes defying God again and again, uh, just, just because I can't resist. Uh, the, this psalm also contains the verses which prove definitively that we are the biological descendants of those who left Egypt. They spoke against God saying, can God spread a feast in the wilderness? True, he struck the rock and waters flowed, streams gushed forth. But can he provide bread? Can he supply meat? Man, those are our ancestors. <laughs> Any case... Uh, the question we're really looking at is, uh, what was it that we just weren't grasping uh, in the desert that led us to continuously defy and question God? And how did the makot, or more precisely, the show of power that the, uh, made the plagues possible, how did the second coming of those displays of power uh, try to convey to us um, this thing that we clearly weren't yet grasping about 
what our relationship was with God and who we ourselves. And so uh, what I'd like to do is to uh, first make the case, and this is work done by uh, someone named David Schwartz, whose article I read in Tradition, to kind of to make the case that indeed the plagues do come a second time. And I'll share screen just for a minute or two here, just to sort of make the case. Um, and here it is. Can you see it? Okay. Um, you take a look just at the way that the, uh, the, the language the Torah uses. Um, and I'm trying to get this to slide down for me a little bit. Okay. Um, uh, look, look at some of the things that happen. Uh, first, we have kind of parallel to the force that God used in the first plague, changing the Nile to blood. Uh, we have, as Ibn Ezra understands it, a, uh, the same exact thing, but in reverse when we get out of Egypt. Uh, we come to the bitter waters. Moses uses his staff, same staff that he used in Egypt, to turn the Nile to blood. And this time, instead of turning the drinkable water into non-drinkable water, Moshe, by God's hand, is able to turn the non-drinkable water into drinkable water. And Ibn Ezra there makes the comment, this, this is the same kind of force being, same kind of power. Uh, of the first plague, it just happens to be used in reverse. And uh, look at some of the language, uh, uh, the parallel. On the right-hand side, when it comes to the frogs, um, the Tzvardea came up, and they covered the land. And then in chapter 16, there in the box on the left, when we are out in the desert, same language. God uh, causes the quail to come up, and the quail cover the camp. It's that same uh, power that God utilized to uh, produce the second plague is here produced again, uh, as the uh, parallel in language suggests, when God brings the quail for us to eat. And then we have uh, the very one or perhaps two, depending on what Arug is, uh, two plagues in which God uh, causes insects or swarming things uh, to materialize. And sure enough, the same thing happens when we're out of the desert. Uh, when people defy God, leave the manna for longer than they should, thus displaying lack of faith that God will bring manna tomorrow. Sure enough, it is swarming things uh, that fill the uh, the leftover manna that shouldn't have been left over. Same idea. The same power that was used before is being displayed again. And finally, the last example, uh, though there are more, um, the uh, plagues of boils and hail and locust uh, are all kind of recapitulated uh, in our early experience in the desert here as we stand at the foot of Sinai, uh, seven weeks after we leave Egypt. As you can see on the right side, uh, in uh, the descriptions of the plagues, the boils result from the, uh, the uh, ash of the kiln, which is thrown heavenward, continuing on the right-hand column, the description of thunder and hail and fire uh, within the hail, uh, that characterizes Sinai 
in addition to, I'm sorry, that characterizes, I'm running ahead of myself, the, the plague of, of hail and of locust. Um, and uh, there in 1015, that's the darkening of the land caused by the locust. And all of these elements, uh, the kiln, the smoke, the, uh, the fire, the lightning, uh, the thunder, it all returns at Sinai. And uh, I'll stop sharing for the moment. And uh, the idea is that truly the power that God displays in the Makot is very deliberately recapitulated um, in our early days and early weeks in the desert. And the idea I would suggest of this recapitulation, this sequel, this second coming of the power of the Makot is that in Egypt, the makot, the plagues, were intended to convey a simple lesson. A, that the God of Israel has a very clearly articulated will, and B, that the God of Israel has the wherewithal to cause his will to actually become translated into life on earth. That's what the makot, the plagues in in Egypt, ultimately demonstrated and ultimately accomplished. The second coming of the makot is intended to convey to the children of Israel that now that we are liberated, now that we are no longer slaves, we all step into the role of Moshe. We are now people who represent the clearly articulated will of the God of Israel, the will of the God of Israel that people conduct themselves in a certain way, that societies conduct themselves in a certain way and build the institutions necessary uh, for justice and for kindness uh, to be displayed and to define who we are individually and socially. We represent the clearly articulated will of God. And if we do it right, the power of God will be in our sails. God will have our back. And the way that God desires to demonstrate this to us, to get us to grasp this, is by showing that the power and the clearly articulated will were not left back in Egypt. They are now with us. They journeyed with us into the desert. And all around us, we see the very same power. And little by little, first at the, uh, with the manna and then at Sinai, we begin to hear the clearly articulated will of God. So we begin to understand that the, uh, the signs and wonders of Egypt weren't just a trick to extract us from bondage. They are what accompany us and define us now as we move ahead into the journey. And this is the thing that it took us a while to grasp this. It took us a while to grasp that we were now ourselves all Moshe, a Mamlechet Moshe, Mamlechet Kohanim, those who clearly articulated the will of God the way that Moshe clearly articulated the way of God. Uh, the will of God, and that we will be backed up by the power of God 
if we are determined, as Moshe was determined, to see to it that the will of God makes its way into the world. We didn't grasp that this was our identity. This is why we were liberated. This is who we now are. And God's hope initially is that if we see the power of God and hear the clearly articulated will of God, we'll get it. We'll understand that uh, this is why we came out. This is why uh, we were liberated from bondage. This is who we are. And so I suggest to conclude, as I said at the outset, when we recite the Makot at the Seder, to think about chapter one of the Makot, what happened in Egypt, why it happened the way it happened, so many things to think about. But we can also uh, have a second kavanah, and that is to think about how all of these makot, or the power behind them, manifested again, as God was trying to demonstrate to us that we have the power of God behind us and with us if we step up to the role of speaking God's clearly articulated will and living God's clearly articulated will the way our leader did in Egypt and the way that all of us now, as the followers of that leader, uh, step into that role. Something to think about while we recite the Makkah. Chazaku Baruch, Rav Yosef. Ruchim to you. One of the many, many things I love about these gatherings that our communities do several times a year, still not often enough, is not just seeing members of the different communities coming together to share Torah and study Torah, but my opportunity to hear Torah from, from dear friends and colleagues. Usually we're, we're stuck in our own shuls, and it's a beautiful and rare opportunity to hear, hear words of Torah from all of, all of my colleagues tonight. Listen, one of the great things about the phenomenology of the Pesach Seder in Jewish culture throughout the world is that pretty much every Jew has a deep experience of it. <clears throat> it's muscle memory. It's mother's milk. And there's good news and bad news to that. The good news is that we've known these syllables and these tunes and these rhythms since we've known that we were we. The bad news is it's very easy, even though it's the text that's most studied perhaps by Jews, it's very easy to um, forget what shot is and forget what the simple and complex and original meanings of the words were. I sometimes have the following reaction when I get to Avadim Hayinu Hayinu, the Pharaoh Ben Mitzrayim, Biv Mitzrayim, depending on which way you sing it. Ata, Ata, Benechorin. We were slaves in Egypt. Yeah. Ata, now with an ayin. Benechorin. We are free. My instinctive reaction to that concept sometimes is really? Free to do what? Free from, perhaps, free from Egypt, free from bondage, free from slavery, free to relax, free to party, free to build a golden calf, free to rebel, free to throw off not just iron shackles, but any shackles that don't feel comfortable. On the one hand, that those two words or the concept is the clarion call for our people and other peoples who have grafted their stories onto our people, right? The Israelite redemption from Egypt and their push towards freedom. You can see many, many places in Western culture, right? in parts of American uh, culture, 
parts of the African-American culture. Some of you may know the words to one of the Negro spirituals, oh, freedom, oh, freedom, oh, freedom over me. And before I'd be a slave, I'd be buried in my grave and go home to my Lord and be free. Meaning anything for freedom. But on the other hand, freedom to do what? What is the freedom to which we were released when we were released from bondage? I would posit to you that Jews would say, and psychologists would say, and wisdom teachers would say, that the greatest freedom that exists as a human being is to choose whether and when and how and to whom to be bound. The most profound freedom is to be able to choose when not to be free. And so when we uh, exclaim that we're now free, we ought, we ought contextualize it, free to voluntarily be rebound. And because we don't live in a theocracy, thank God, all of our sense of being bound, whatever our, our theologies are, where no one is forcing us, all of our sense of being bound to any of this is voluntary. I tell nearly, nearly everybody in Mitzvah family that I talk to uh, in, the, in a meeting before the, before the event, that there is some joy and some fear and trembling at a bar bat mitzvah. Because when we have our parents say, that blessed be the one who has released me of the burden of, of carrying this, the responsibility for this person instead of mitzvot, because it's on you now, we mean it, it's on you, young boy, young girl. No one's going to force you. Will you choose with your newfound adult freedom to be rebound? We hope so. I have every couple that I work with towards a chuppah buy and read and study the masterful book by Esther Perel, the New York-based psychotherapist, called Mating in Captivity, a profound name for an iconoclastic book. She said, let's call marriage what it is. It is a captivity. It is a chosen voluntary captivity. Every I do closes a door to everyone else on the planet. Now, how do we figure out how to have meaning and ecstasy and purpose and endurance and celebration in our being rebound, re-tethered. One of the greatest things that a professional can do in their life is to work hard enough to earn the ability to sign a long contract, whether you're in baseball or the rabbinate or a teacher. And there's a wonderful double entendre in the English because you sign that contract to secure your future, which means to make sure it's going to be possible. But secure also means to fasten, to connect yourself to these folks and these four amot and this set of obligations. And even the four languages of redemption in the book of Shemot, the sixth chapter, that are the basis of the four cups of wine and the four everythings of the, of the Seder, have a hint of that. Vehotseiti, I'll bring you out. Vehitsalti, I will save you. Vegaalti, I will redeem you. Vilakachti, I'm going to take you. God says, I'm going to claim you. It's the same verb that the Torah used for marriage. The fourth part of our being free is to be not free again at Sinai. And even beyond that, the Heveti. There's some people talk about the fifth cup of wine because two psukim later, God says, and I'm going to bring you. I'm going to bring you to a land that's going to bind you historically, bind you with extra meat's vote, not to a land where you can do whatever you want. That's not Torah freedom. Torah freedom is to choose to be bound, hopefully, 
to a benevolent master and find meaning in that servitude for the rest of your life. Two years ago, our shul had the great opportunity to visit Morocco. And we visited a town called Essaouira, which I'd never heard of. I'm almost embarrassed I'd never heard of it because it was a tremendous center of Torah learning for the Moroccan Jewish community. It was also called Mogadir. And I bought a Haggadah from um, a Muslim family that operated the Rav Chaim Pinto synagogue in Essaouira with great reverence in perpetuating that local um, rabbinic tradition. And in that Haggadah, there's a commentary by Rabbi Avram ben Yehuda Koriat. He was Essaweran Mogadiran rabbi who died in 1806. And he says that Avadim Hayinu is one of the answers to the four questions. He says the four questions, you don't have to wait a long time for them to be answered. They're answered rather immediately. And he goes through a long discursus on it. To what question is Avadim Hayinu the answer to? It's the, an- the question, the answer, the question is, why do we dip twice? Why is there, are there two dipping? Afilu um, Why do we dip twice uh, in our uh, Seder? And he says the two dippings refers to the two things to which we were enslaved or that made the, that enslavement particularly onerous and oppressive. Avadim hayinu lefaro, to a person, the Mitzrayim in Egypt. It was the, the, the cruel human and the cruel setting. And we wanted neither. And both mattered. Our cruel human in a place that supported us would have been better. And a benevolent master in a place that was oppressive to us would have been better. But we had both of those things to throw off. And so the two tvilot, the two dippings, represent that duality. Which means in reverse, if you can be claimed, trapped, imprisoned, tethered to, bound by a one or a concept or a community that uplifts you in a place that fills you up, that's exactly the avdut that we want. So when we sing this year, Abadim Hayunu, perhaps we should put it into that obscure Hebrew present tense for the verb to be, which is never used except in the Adon Olam. Abadim Hayinu, we were slaves. Abadim Hovim, we still are. Let's make it exceptional. Thank you so much to my friends and my colleagues, um, to, to Rabbi Adam Klegfeld and to Rav Yosef Konevsky and to all of the teams from all three communities. I'm so uh, grateful for the opportunity to learn with you tonight and looking forward to what is to come after this. Um, I am uh, going to share with you just something that strikes me this year from the Magid section of our Seder. And so um, I'll share with you, this is going to be a bit, let me put the text in here because uh, I know some of you will want to look at it at your own, on your own time or at your own pace. Okay. So um, I often think and talk about the story of Yitziat Mitzrayim, the story of, of our exodus as the meta-narrative of the Jewish people, as the core story. It's clearly so central to our self-understanding. It's central to the way that we live and act in the world. It's central to our religious rituals, to the way that we eat and speak. We speak of the uh, exodus from Egypt not only every year at Passover, not only on Rosh Chodesh, the beginning of each new month, 
but also every single Shabbat, just as uh, Shabbat is coming in when we say Kiddush. And also every time we daven, we talk about or we allude to or make reference to this incredible story, which holds within it uh, in many ways the both the theology and uh, and the and the practical application of a story that transcends time and space. So I want to, our job during Magid is to tell the story. In the Haggadah, it's told in a particular way, but as Rabbi Kasher often says, sometimes in order to capture the essence of this story, the best thing that you can do is put the Haggadah down and actually tell the story. Um, and so I want to look at one particular piece that comes from the, um, that comes from the Magid section and then give a, offer for us a maybe a discussion that we can put the Haggadah down uh, for and have with the people who are seated around the table or across the screen from us this year. So here is your source sheet for this piece. Um, okay, so in the Magid section, um, we that I want to focus on for just a couple of minutes tonight. Um, we share the part of the story uh, that comes from the book of Deuteronomy that says, and we cried out to the Lord, the God of our ancestors, and the Lord heard our voice and God saw our affliction and our toil and our duress. We cried out to the Lord, the God of our ancestors. Um, so it goes on then to quote um, a verse from Exodus chapter two, verse 23. And it was in those great days that the king of Egypt died. The children of Israel were groaning under the bondage and they cried out and the cry for help from bondage rose up to God. And I put here the full um, context of just the two verses that come immediately afterward. Um, so they cry out in their bondage, in their suffering and that cry rose up to God, and God heard their moaning, their groaning, their suffering. And God remembered the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then God looked upon the Israelites and took notice of them. This is really the beginning of the redemption story. And what I want to look at together with us for a few moments tonight is what's clear here in the story, at least the way that it appears in the book of Exodus, is that there is a connection between the cries that the people um, shout up to the heavens in that moment and God's response. That in some way, what happened started on the ground floor and rose up and elicited some kind of holy response. And I want to try to understand what the nature of that cry really was. And we're going to look at a couple of different uh, possibilities of what's actually going on there. Is everyone with me on the uh, on the question that we're asking? Clearly from the narrative that we receive in the book of Exodus, which then appears as part of our uh, story in Deuteronomy and it appears in the Haggadah. The children of Israel who are suffering under bondage cry out. And that cry in some way elicits the response from God that begins the process of redemption. So what is the nature of that cry? Now, in order to try to understand more about what's actually going on with that cry, the rabbis hone in on one very strange and interesting element of the narrative that we just read. You might even uh, not have noticed it because we're so focused on, um, on the cry itself. But in the beginning of the Pasuk of chapter 2, verse 23, it says, 
Vayihi vayamim harabimahem. It was after a long time. Vayamot melech mitzrayim. After the king of Egypt died, that the children of Israel began to groan under bondage. The rabbis in some way want to hint to us that that detail, that this happened after the king of Egypt, after Pharaoh died, is really critical to us understanding the nature of the experience that the Israelites were having and the nature of God's response. So what, what does it actually mean? Now, Rashi has an interesting interpretation, which actually comes from, uh, from the Midrash, from Exodus Rabbah. Now, and, and, and you may or may not be familiar with this Midrash. What Rashi says is that when it says, the king of Egypt died, he didn't actually die. That in a way, it's kind of um, creative language. What happened was he was so sick from leprosy that it was as if he was dead, right? He was, he, he was knocked out from this illness. And what happened because he was suffering so badly, they actually would kill Israelite enslaved children so that he could bathe in their blood, thinking that that would be a cure for the disease that he was suffering from. I, I just want you to think about this for a moment because, because the kind of, of humiliation and horror and degradation and cruelty that our ancestors suffered as enslaved people in the land of Egypt, the kind of cruelty that any people suffer as an enslaved nation, it is so profound and so horrific that it's hard for us to even imagine it. And yet this kind of boggles the mind in its cruelty, that he's sick and he's, and he's suffering from his illness. So he takes the babies and slaughters the babies so that he can bathe in their blood. And why is Rashi telling us this? Because somehow that level of cruelty was what was so serious, so severe that it led the people to cry out. And that actually awakened God to what, what they were struggling with and suffering from. But Ramban doesn't want to have any of that. Ramban says, this is just a midrash. This is not what actually happened here. And he says, instead, there's another understanding of what was going on. And why the text in Exodus actually starts by saying, it, it wasn't that he was sick. It was that he actually died, that Pharaoh actually died in that moment. And the moment that Pharaoh died is the moment that the Israelites for the first time cried out. Now, why would they cry out when Pharaoh dies? And the answer he says is this. In line with the plain meaning of the scripture, it is to be explained that the custom of all subjects of a wicked tyrant is to hope for and look forward to the day of the tyrant's death. But when the Israelites saw that the king died, they wailed bitterly. Why? Because they couldn't believe that, 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 that someone else would come into power who was even worse than Pharaoh himself. And yet that's exactly what happened. Instead of their suffering ending when this evil man finally died, their suffering only persisted. And Ramban argues that it was that experience, it was that experience that made them finally cry out. And he quotes Ezekiel saying that their hope is lost. They, they held on to the hope that the minute this administration ends, things will be okay for us. But it didn't magically transform 
there was still pain and there was still heartache. And that's when they became so dispirited that they actually lost hope. So for Ramban and also for Bechor and for others, that cry that they offered in the book of Exodus, that was actually a cry of despair. What God heard was the people despairing that things would ever get better again, because all they knew was that this person, this external force was responsible for their suffering. And so one day that external stimulus would be gone and we would be okay. And then even after he died, they realized that they weren't going to be okay. And so they cried from despair. But I have a problem with this read that I want to share with you. And maybe you do too. And the problem is that this is not a moral message. There's no moral message to say, give up hope and then God will show up for you. Give up hope and cry out and then the Holy One will appear and together you'll walk toward redemption. That is not a moral message. So Ramban here, he may have preached, but this was not a sermon because you can't tell a congregation that the only time God will appear is when things get so bad that the tyrant is bathing in the blood of your children and you lose all hope. And then finally, redemption starts to come. So instead, I just share with you the beginning of this text that comes from Neashi Loach, from the Ishbitzer Rebbe from 18th century. Instead, he, he says the following. And the children of Israel sighed from their labor. They groaned, they cried out, and their groaning rose up to God from their labor. He says, at this moment, the salvation actually began. Once they started to cry out, then immediately their groaning rose up, meaning that their groaning catalyzed the salvation. We know this already because it's clear from the shot of the text in Exodus that their groaning, their crying out is part of what prompted God to respond. But then look at what he says. For until this moment, they had not been awake to scream and to pray. And because the Holy One desired to redeem them, therefore the scream was awakened within them. This is the beginning of redemption. When a person is aroused to scream to God. The Mashiach is offering a very different understanding of what it takes in order for God to be awakened and God to be aroused in order for the redemption to start. It's not that we get to the point of despair. It's that we wake up enough that our moral imagination is stirred up enough through all of the anguish that we cry out, not with despair, but instead with hope. When we cry out with hope, then God actually responds. I I have on the text, and you can look at it later, a story that I love so much that comes from Rachel Naomi Remen, who writes this this beautiful books. This one's from Kitchen Table Wisdom, where she tells the story about being a child who was struggling with illness when she was 14 years old. And one day she's walking down the street on on Fifth Avenue in, in New York City, and she sees the most astonishing sight, which is she sees two blades of of grass that are growing through the sidewalk in New York City. Have you ever seen such a thing? And she's it takes her breath away. And she realizes that's power. That's power to be able to push through the cement, these two little blades of grass. And she said, I recognized in that moment a connection between my own anger over my illness, my anguish, my struggle, and my will to live. My anger was my will to live turned inside out, she says. My life force was just as intense, just as powerful as my anger. But for the first time, I could experience it as different and feel it 
directly. The reason I want to share this with us, especially this year, as we, as we go through this time, is because we absolutely have to understand that our grief, our anguish, even our anger can actually be a sign of our will to live, can be a sign that we are waking up, that our moral imagination is being excited, enlivened, enriched in this moment. And that could be the birthplace of the redemption, that only when we are awake enough to be outraged and devastated and anguished, might we actually be willing to do the work in partnership with the Holy One that actually needs to be done in order for us to start the path toward redemption. I wish you Chag Sameach and turn it over, I think, to Rabbi Rebecca Schatz. Are you next? Sure. Um, we are going to go into breakout rooms now. So I will let uh, Andrea explain to us how we're going to set that up so that people can go into the breakout rooms and just another Yesha Koach to Rabbi Yosef Kaneski and Rabbi Sharon Brous and Rabbi Adam Klegfeld. Uh, well, we wanted to explore tonight with to you. learn with uh, the other rabbis. The there will be two text study breakout rooms children, and one that will be specifically uh, focused on how to create a seder for young families and a little bit more uh, of a these creative, four children. fun, uh, and exciting, the different energy, the different perspectives, uh, the different Torah that they bring to the discussion of what uh, our senior rabbis just beautifully spoke about in terms of how we communicate uh, our, our story as a people of the beginning of our freedom, uh, the crying out against our suffering and uh, our our following God ultimately in the way that we lead our lives even today. So the the text starts out, Baruch HaMakam Baruch Hu, Baruch Shonatan Torah Lamo Yisrael Baruch Hu. So we're so grateful to God. Blessed is God uh, who has given Torah to the people of Israel. Blessed is God. Keneged Arba'a Banim Dibra Torah. Uh, against in relation to uh, through four children, um, the the Torah is spoken, or uh, we we hear the Torah. The Torah speaks. Uh, so these are the four children we're familiar with: the wise one, the wicked one, uh, the one who is innocent, and the one who doesn't know how to ask questions to begin with. And one of the things that jumped out to Rabbi Shatz and myself this year in looking at this is this this highlighted part. Uh, why is it that Torah is communicated through these four different people, through these different personalities, voices, ways of being, ways of thinking, questions? Um, why is it that this is how Baruch HaMakom, Hamakom, blessed is God, that God teaches us Torah? It's profound that, you know, if it's not, it's not through the, uh, the, the way that we think of Matan Torah at Har Sinai, rather this is a, given the, the Torah at Sinai, rather this is, we are receiving the Torah specifically through four different personalities, different voices. Um, and why is that the way that the Torah is communicating to us? Why is that the way that we hear Torah today? Rabbi Sachs, uh, as he always does in his phenomenal writing um, and and his Haggadah is, is a fantastic companion to have with you at the table if you don't already have it. Uh, he explains that these four questions are these four people who ask these questions, these four personalities uh, are actually referring to uh, four different moments in the Torah where we're told about this parent-child relationship, specifically where a child turns to the parent and uh, 
wonders, asks, challenges, uh, and then how does the parent respond? So the Chazal, the rabbis, chose to incorporate these four different uh, personas as a way of referencing these four different times in the Torah uh, where we are told to teach our children. So right away, the Torah is then being communicated to us through a parent-child relationship, a grandparent-child relationship, a teacher-student relationship. Uh, the the question of why is it connected arba banim dibrat Torah? Uh, it's that the Torah gets told, understood, internalized when it's when there's a relationship, when there's a banim situation of of uh, someone who is learning from someone else and looking, challenging, growing, and connecting. So th- this is. Uh, you know, based in the text of the Torah, where we see these four different places, and I won't read them inside, but you can see they're all connected to the questions that we ultimately are familiar with in the Haggadah, and you will have this sheet to look at as well. Uh, and so what I wanted to present as we begin this, this exploration of the, the four children is to, to wonder why it is that we find Torah in relationship, meaning that um, Torah is not something that's done exclusively intellectually. It's done in dialogue. It's done in conversation. And I love uh, how Rabbi Braus and uh, Rabbi Kasha were, were you know, communicating that we sometimes need to step away to really see what's going on. Um, that we find Torah in uh, in personality, in the different stages of educational development, in, um, I think, most profoundly right now, in realizing that each of us has these moments of questioning, uh, these different personalities and voices, uh, and asking how each of those voices is also a source of Torah for us. So how is my chacham, my rasha, how, how are those voices going to reveal more Torah to me this year? Because that's how the Torah is spoken, is through each of them. None of them is cut out, including the rasha. They're a part of the revelation of Torah in our, free, our story of freedom and in our story of being a people. So this is where we will begin, and I'm going to turn it over to uh, Rabbi Schatz, who's going to explain giving visual aid to this this concept. I loved how you just explained um, that we need each of the different children to be able to hear that Torah, right? We can't just be the Chacham, it also needs to be the Rasha, it can't just be the Tam, it also needs to be the child who we prompt, uh, or really even the adult who we prompt to ask those questions, Um and uh, and I love being able to think about that as opposed to just deciding I am this or you are that, but that we each need a little bit of, of the different characters to bring out the Torah inside us. And it might be different each year uh, who we represent. So uh, in that similar vein, here is a here's a picture which you can see uh, from this is the Haggadah that actually my family has used for a gazillion years. Uh, it's the R.A. Haggadah. And this this shows you that the different the different elements of each of these children is found in every one of us. So if you can see in the visual depiction, there are different, you can't say that there are four colors. I don't know why they chose just two different shades of blue, but so be it. Um, there are four different colors and each each person, each uh, human depiction here has each one of those colors within their goof, within their body. So some one of them has, you know, orange as their body, the other one has orange as the torso, the other as their legs. And it just shows us how the different 
the different parts of us that are maybe thinking more like the Chacham uh, as opposed to acting more like the Chacham. We do have each one of these children going through us at all times. It just depends on how we utilize that which that child depicts. Um, so if we're walking in the world unaware of that which is around us and not helping to heal our world, it's possible that we aren't we aren't the chacham in our legs. We're the chacham somewhere else. Uh, but being able to be on a spectrum with other people who carry the different elements of those children in different aspects of their body means that in community we can all come together to um, to do it all together. So if you scroll down a little bit, Ramani Melissa, this one I won't speak as much about, though I do love it. Um, this is a depiction of the four children that is all women, which I think is. Ravani Talis and I love teaching together, but I also love that we're both women getting to teach together often. Um, and I thought that that's why I would share this one tonight. This shows four different women, and we don't know which one is which, right? It doesn't say this one is the Chacham or this one is the Rasha. It's just four different women in this uh, in this illustration, and you get to decide for yourself, maybe based on who you feel like you are in this artistic rendering, which one is which, right? It doesn't matter that the woman wearing the kippah, in your mind, might be the chacham. To someone else, it might be the person who doesn't know how to ask, right? So the, you are able to mirror yourself in this picture and decide, this is how I see myself uh, as the Chacham, the Rasha, and so on. So we'll go now to the actual uh, Torah, so to speak, of the Haggadah, um, and we'll start with the Chacham. Awesome. I love that. I love how you said that we can sort of, we, we can choose and interpret, because honestly, when I first saw that, I didn't even notice that. I sort of just assumed whatever it was that I saw. So yeah. Amazing insight. <laughs> <laughs> so, so starting with the hacham, it was funny because we were we were trying to figure out how we were going to divide up the four children, um, and so you know ultimately uh, uh, I'm doing the hacham and the tam. We're going to switch off, uh, but I kind of felt like I feel weird that I got the like the two, you know, the two sort of good ones, um, and I actually don't think that they're necessarily the good ones, but it, it, it hit me like, oh, but maybe I wanted like the other ones. So <laughs> I think just beginning to sort of hear our biases um, coming into these, these personalities also is very telling because this is, this is communicating to us about who we are. And again, like the Torah that comes out of each of them. Mm-hmm. So the Chacham, I feel like, you know, right away, it might seem very obvious. Well, of course, Chazal, every, you know, any Mepharshim that you look at about the Haggadah is going to say the Hacham is the person who's, you know, who knows Torah law, who, who's very knowledgeable and, you know, beyond their, their years in terms of um, uh, even engaging in Torah mitzvot and, and, uh, and, and being invested in the Chukim, Mishvatim, because uh, that, that, that's what the Hacham asks. So, um, you know, the, the, the question right away is, Ma ha'edot v'ha'chukim v'ha'mishvatim asher tzipa Hashem alokeinu etchem. So, so, asking a question genuinely about wanting to learn more of the laws and most texts you'll see in the commentaries about this will emphasize that uh, Edot and Chukim and Mishpatim are just referring to sort of different kinds of, of Torah and Halacha um, and that, that that he is he or she is automatically recognizing that there's so much of Torah to be learned and so many different kinds of laws and so many different um, levels of connection and belief in practice. 
what I what I wanted to share with you um, is that you know the the answer we give is certainly of of the Pesach offer offering and Avikomen, uh, which is you know we have so much each of us could give a could give a share on on each of these parts, um, but there's I found I thought it was a very interesting interpretation of what it is the, that the Chacham sees, especially when we're asking ourselves you know what is the Torah that each of these children is, is speaking and communicating to us, or maybe that is coming from within us. Uh, the, the Rabbi Yochanan ben Yosef Treves explains uh, that, that this, what the Hacham sees is the dynamic at the table um, and the way the Korban Pesach is being eaten, which we know is, you know, it's done with haste. It's, uh, he says that each one gets chalak amu'at, everyone's getting a little piece, uh, and they are behen makpidim alav, lechol so they're, they're eating in a way that's um, very intense and uh, it's not the way that we normally eat. And so the Chacham sits down at the table and looks around at family eating together and wonders, you know, the way that we normally eat is to have... Um, and so I'm on a holiday, is to be least moach, iman shebeto. We're supposed to be happy with the people we're eating with. Uh, even more so, though, um, he says what we, what he thinks what we normally do is we actually, uh, I mean, that should sound like, whoa, we just celebrated Purim. You know, it, the things that we normally do when we have holidays together and we celebrate and serve Hashem and have gratitude, you know, we, we, we open our homes and go to others. We connect, we have guests, we, uh, you know, maybe give gifts or, or, or things to each other uh, to celebrate our connection and connectedness. Uh, and, and I felt like, you know, perhaps it's this year in particular why this hit me when I read this. Um, but to, to think that the Chacham recognizes that Korban Pesach is actually not supposed to be, not supposed to be, uh, you know, move, moving from home to home and eating it and, and, you know, moving around in the way, in the communal way we normally think. Its practice is actually something where it's very focused, it's in haste, and it's recognizing the way in which God instructed us to eat it in the Torah. Um, and, and so what the Hacham is seeing is, why is the community looking different right now? What's missing? What's abnormal? Who is missing? Why are things different? And what is it that I love about shared community and connection? Um, and what is it that I can learn also from being on my own in a small space with my family? Um, how, what is it that I can learn? So you can hear as I'm saying this, you know, so much of this this year stands out because we've had to ask ourselves these very questions. Uh, and part of what I think the wisdom in Torah of the Chacham can be uh, is, is looking at the way in which we're interacting as a community and in our homes and trying to find value in uh, what we might be used to and also with what's supposed to be jarring and different to help us feel aroused to have redemption and to create and bring redemption. And interestingly, it, it is it's not what we would normally do. It's not the communal feeling. Uh, so perhaps maybe this year we access this uh, this Torah of the Chacham in a different way. The last thing I'll say on the Chacham before we move on uh, is that there's a, a beautiful Haggadah from Rabbi Shlomo Yerskin, uh, and he he emphasizes that the what the Chacham, what the Chacham is what the wise child um, is not only bringing is of course you know this. Um, the wisdom and knowledge that he has and intellectual questions. But he's also, uh, Rabbi Ruskin explains that the, the Chacham represents additionally um, what the Chacham can learn. So, you know, I said like, oh, did I, you know, the good one? But there, there is something that the Chacham may not see. 
he or she sees something at the table, but what else uh, is there that, what are the, um, you know, what's the growing potential for this person? So he says, uh, the wise child has asked several intelligent questions. His approach to life is intellectual. He wants to understand and to reason, and you must instruct him. However, you must also teach him that Judaism is not merely an intellectual pursuit. While he may comprehend the laws, the laws cognitively, he should also remember the taste of the matzah. It is not enough only to study Judaism. One must also practice it. And the joy of practicing should be as a pleasant taste on the tongue, remaining long after the actual performance of the mitzvah, which is why he's saying our answer, scrolling back up, becomes about eating the Pesach, the Korban Pesach, and the Apikomen. It becomes about the taste. It's not just about the mind, it's about the experience. So I, you know, I'll leave you on in this part, just I, I put in each of them um, the strengths of that personality, noticing detail, knowledge, reflecting on community, putting self in context, but also what's the growing potential, stepping beyond the mind and, you know, the details and into the lived experience, moving from engaged observer into active participant, and to, to begin to sort of reflect on what's the chacham part of me that I need to grow in, or what are my strengths, what are, what are my growing edges, uh, and also how can I hear this Torah differently this year. And with that, we will move on to Rasha. I'm going to share my screen just so I can scroll, um, even though it'll be the same, the same text. Okay. Uh, that was a great segue. I don't know if you did that on purpose. <laughs> that was a great segue into the Rasha. Um, because the Rasha, as we're going to see in a moment, Rabbi Baruch Epstein actually talks about the Rasha being exactly the opposite of the Chacham in that way, that the ritualistic experience is actually that which the Rasha is annoyed by, um, that the Rasha wishes that it was just something that you could understand by having the story told and that you didn't have to have that experience. So we'll get there in a moment, but that was a beautiful, a beautiful beautiful segue. So I just want to point out before we go into the text itself that we are going to get, you've already gotten it in your, um, in the chat, but we're hoping that you actually can use this at your Seder. So I'm not going to go through every single word that I, that I put on my sheets. And I know that Rabbi Nita Lissa is also kind of summarizing that which is there, but we hope that this is something you can use. I know my family loves to dwell on the four children, probably because I'm one of four children. Um, and we always talk, <laughs> we always talk about who are you this year and what do you bring into um, the proverbial table. So feel free to use any of this to read that which we're not going to be able to get to this evening um, with limited time, but uh, but know that this is all for you in uh, in the document. Okay, the Russia. I love the Russia, so I was very happy to take to take this character um, because I think that that this is a character that gets a bad rap because Russia, in when we translate that to English, is is very negative and it's even negative in Hebrew. But I think the the connotation is even stronger when you say evil, right? There's something very uh, sociologically like terrible about that that makes you think of a Disney film with an evil villain. And I don't believe that that's who this is. I don't believe that that's what the Russia is actually showing us here. So what does it say in the text? Uh, the Rasha says, what is this worship to you? To all of you. And quite literally, it's to y'all, right? To all of you and not to him. So to those outside of myself, as opposed to to me, the Rasha is not asking, how is this supposed to be meaningful to me as a Jew, as a learner, as a participant? What the Rasha is asking is, why do you all care so much about this? Why is this something that you are playing along with 
experiencing with learning why why is this not something that I feel um, connected to? And so the Haggadah continues. The Rasha has now excluded themselves from the collective. They've literally taken themselves apart from the community. And he, there's this very beautiful phrase, kafar be'ikar. And what that colloquially means is that he's denied the principle of religion. By the way, I'm saying he, though I don't actually mean he. It could be it could be any, any gender. Uh, we're just saying he to kind of mean a human. But it literally means to deny the essence of this of this thing, right? The ikar, the essence. Ikar. Ah, very nice. Um, I didn't even think about that. And accordingly, you will blunt his teeth. Hakhe et shinav. You will break his power. You will break him down and say to the Rasha, for the sake of this, did the Lord do this for me and my going out of Egypt? For me and not for him, right? Again, for me and not for anybody else. If he had been there, if the Rasha had been there, they would not have been saved. So, oh, we're reading it in 10 minutes. Okay, I'll read very quickly. Uh, so, I want to read this piece here that, that Rabbi Benjamin David Rabinowitz uh, wrote. And that says, The wicked child is considered wicked because the Rasha will only observe a commandment if they know its reason. So this is like the opposite of na'asev and ishma, right? That, that they're only going to do something if they know what it is, as opposed to doing something and then potentially learning from that experience. The answer which we give the wise child, which Rabbi Elisa just talked about, is to teach them all the commandments until the very end of the Seder. Don't eat after the afikomen, for example. We teach them all the commandments, even if they are chukimi, if there are laws or statutes for which there is no rational explanation. The wicked child, on the other hand, asks for an explanation for the mitzvot, since they will only observe the commandments if they think they make sense. So I don't want to do this thing because it doesn't mean anything to me. It might mean something to all of you, but it doesn't mean anything to me. We tell the Rasha that God took us out of Egypt because we accepted the commandments freely. Had the Rasha been in Egypt, he would not have been accept he would not have accepted these commandments on faith and therefore he would not have been redeemed. And this last little piece that I'll read to you that I love and it's from psychology today which I know is kind of like a I don't know Make your you can judge me in any way you want, but I thought this was a beautiful piece. The path from the Tam to the Chacham, from a simple to a more mature faith, passes through the Rasha. The Rasha is a form of differentiation. The Rasha is the sun, the character in the play who differentiates from the path of sincere faith by saying, in essence, I'm not part of this. I require myself to assess whether this is for me or not. Differentiation is a well-known process in human development, common in teens, but important for adults as well. It's the edge that helps us to mature. In spiritual development, differentiation is a critical component to a faith embraced freely, and not just by habit or necessity. So when we go to, this, to, the, to the next uh, character here, I want you all to think about how we each have within us a little bit of this Russia, because this year... As opposed to last year and as opposed to next year, something just isn't going to sit with you. Maybe a part of the story isn't as meaningful this year as it was last year, or maybe an element of the Seder just doesn't seem to be relevant. So figure out the way 
that something else can have more relevance, that you can enhance a different part of the Seder, that even if you are taking yourself out of a part of the Seder that isn't for you, but it's for everybody else, that there can be that element for you where you feel like you're really digging your heels in, you feel connected to something, and that you don't take yourself away from the community, from feeling like those around you are getting something out of it, but you're not. Figure out what that part of Rasha is for you and then enhance a different piece to be able to work on that element. Do you want to share your That own? was amazing. Yeah, that was amazing. <laughs> uh, I, I love that to sort of like run right into that part of ourselves um, and, and then, you know, tackle it straight on. Um, the the Tum, uh, and I'll be brief with the Tum, um, though I, I certainly encourage you to read uh, inside here more deeply. Um, but since the Tum is brief, <laughs> Tom asked the question of what is this? Uh, and, you know, it, the, the, I thought it was so interesting that, you know, again, the same, the same rabbi um, explains that the Tom is, is actually considered wise to the, to the, uh, he's, he's seen as wise for having the ability to ask. Um, and then he, he asks in a way that is, um, is is open and willing to hear um without any sort of mocking attitude um and he's you know he's he's definitely not a russia so he seems to be he's we, we hear this communication of him being viewed by the shaino daily show as the person who is wise and not wicked um and and rabbi riskin also emphasizes the tom as someone who is um we, we often sort of give simple mindedness or uh, you know give give him or her a bad rap for being simple and pure as the word tom is often translated um but rather this is someone who you know, somehow manages to have his or her foot in all the different areas um with genuine curiosity uh and wholeheartedness and that i think you know going back to this idea that that torah is communicated through these four different personalities um in ourselves and in others uh, the I, I love how Rabbi Riskin embodies this. So he says, uh, you know, the the term Tom uh, connotes honesty and forthrightness, and Yaakov Avinu. Uh, Jacob was described as Ishtam. Um, and, you know, it's interesting too, because he says that uh, he's someone who has no deceit and no disingenuousness. And he's also someone who really struggled with that too. So he had the Tom part of himself and, uh, and the part that then had to face what is not Tom. Uh, and then he says, Rabbi Nachman of Breslov insisted that he spent all of his life attempting with every fiber of his mind to achieve to me mute the root tom religious naivete and wholeheartedness in the deepest sense of the word tom represents in the writings of the mystics the very highest level of religious consciousness so you know now you're thinking the hacham maybe was the best one but really the tom is you know this is someone who is uh who has sincerity and eagerness to do god's will as well as to truly love and serve one's fellow man um this simple child then according to rabbi riskin and i also would say uh, also to rabbi trevis is that this is this is the one that needs to be elevated in a way that we otherwise would never think to. Uh, the, the, sim the simple in life is actually uh, where, where the most wisdom might be. And I think, again, thinking back to this year and all that we've been through, you know, get, getting down to the bare bones of who we are and what we need, going to the simple and, and having somehow re religious naivete in the midst of the reality that the Russia sees and uh, and that even the Chacham sees, you know, how can I still hold on to this purity in my soul to believe 
to have faith, um, to, to hope and have optimism. That is the tongue. Uh, so again, I put, you know, genuine curiosity is strengths, willingness to ask without judgment, wise in his or her own way, um, has positive religious naivete and is pure and whole in the truest sense. And I would encourage you to sit at your tables and wonder, you know, what are the real strengths and what are the growing edges for these characters? Um, you know, what are the drawbacks of that religious naivete and uh, what, what knowledge and lack of connection might this person also be feeling? So with that, I'll turn it over to you to do, finish us off with Shane on your daily show. Right. So I would say similar to the time that Shane your daily show is actually the one that you want to be at the Seder because you don't come in with any questions and therefore you don't come in with any answers. You come in wanting to learn. You come in someone who is thirsty for that knowledge. And if you are the person who is She'eno Yodei Shol in this moment of the Seder, that doesn't mean that you're the person She'eno Yodei Shol for the entire Seder. You might not know what is going on in this moment of the Seder, but you might have a beautiful piece of Torah to teach us about Karpas, or a beautiful Chiddush to teach us about why we have Korech, right? Not everyone comes to the table on Passover or at any point in our lives knowing everything. And so you need to be able to say, She'eno Yodei Shol. And with 55 seconds <laughs> to go, I will just say that what was what is in red here is that the Rasha and the She'eno Yodei Shol have the same piece of Torah. And so I hope that without telling you why that might be, I hope that you can connect those two. What is it that the Russia is missing out on from not getting the full picture? And what is it that She'eno Yodea Lishol needs us to open up for them so that they can have the full picture of the Seder? And invite someone to your Seder who is a She'eno Yodea Lishol because it makes your Seder do exactly what Passover is supposed to do. It makes you ask questions and you have to give answers. So I hope you have a Chag Kasher V'Sameach and we will come together to close in just seven seconds. <laughs> well done. Yes, sure, go ahead. Thank you all. Well, welcome everybody, um, everybody from the ECAR and B'nai David Judea and Temple Bethlehem communities and people who may have joined us from elsewhere as well. Uh, we are going to do um, a little bit of tag teaming learning. We're going to take a look primarily at three sources together um, and start with a little bit of reflective stuff on the position that we find ourselves in this Pesach. The jumping off point that I'm going to take us from actually comes from the text that Rabbi Kligfeld was looking at, which is at the start of the Magid. I don't know if you all have Haggadot kind of hanging around uh, your tables and desks this time of year. I do um, as I think through this season and um, this year, one of the most fascinating things about the Seder is how some of the liturgy. Oh, my cat's saying hello. Hello, this is this is Oscar. Oscar, you're kind of interrupting class, my friend. This is my Israeli cat. We adopted him ten years ago from Jerusalem. Um, friend, yes, goodbye. Um, so anyway, we. Um, uh, we, I guess he's ma making an appearance. So uh, what, what's so fascinating is how we can have these texts that we hold so um, dear to ourselves uh, and um, don't appear actually in um, the Haggadah itself. I think of it as the Midrash equivalent of the Torah. 
right? The story that we all learn about Terach and Moshe and uh, the idols, that's not actually in the Torah, right? And so there are songs that we learn that aren't actually textually in, in the structure in which we sing them in the Haggadah itself. And we're going to get deep into the language of it altogether. So the example of this comes from something we began singing and talking about earlier. I don't know what version Rabbi Clickville was singing of that, but in our family, we sing, Avadim hainu, hainu, ata b'nei chorin, b'nei chorin. Several things about that are really interesting. I'm going to ask you um, in just a moment to be reflective in our chat all uh, together about this, but I want to point out two things. The first is that if you look at the Halachma Anya paragraph, which I'll pull up a commentary on in just a moment, you'll notice that that phraseology doesn't exist in general. We don't have as a sandwich in one sentence, in one pasuk, we don't have just Avadim Hainu, We just don't have that. That doesn't exist as a sentence. And the second thing about it is that it isn't ever there all in Hebrew. Okay? It's there in Aramaic. And that's what we're really going to get into. But before we do that, just as a theme that I promise we'll come back and wrap on, and we'll leave enough time to do this. Uh, we're going to do our best anyway to do that. Is that I'd love for you to finish this thought. Avadim Hainu, we were slaves. We were in a narrow place in a Mitzrayim, in a bonded place, Ata with an ayin. Now, which we're going to explore that word in just a moment. Now we are what? Where are you right now? Do a self-check-in and pop in the chat a word or a phrase or two. Where are you right now? Vis-a-vis the pandemic, the world, spiritual check-in moment. Where are you? Ata, I am acceptance. I am, I, I kind of hope this chat is, chat is showing up in other people's boxes. Ata, I'm stuck. Ata, we are B'nai, spiritually exhausted and hopeful and hopeful and swamped and grateful. Ata, we are open and free and enlightened. Ata, we are tired, exasperated, cautiously optimistic. Yes, yes, amen, amen, present, guardedly optimistic, worn out, hopeful. Yes, yes, yes. All of those things. Good. I want us to be in that moment of Atta with an ayin. And we're going to take a look at a text. Is it okay with you, Rabbi Kasher, if I share the link to our spreadsheet? Fantastic. Our spreadsheet. Source sheet is the word I'm looking for, but it's almost 8.30 at night. So I'm going to share the link to our source sheet um, and uh, invite you to take a look at it. But also I'll share the screen for those who don't have that much space on your devices to look at all that. And I'm going to share just a tiny, itsy bitsy snippet of a commentary on this and then pass it over to Rabbi Kasher to take us to another text. Okay, so here's the source sheet. Here we go. And um, I'm going to share the screen so that we can look at this together. Here we go. This comes from the Divrei Negidim on the Pesach Haggadah. And it's been attributed to the Maharal. This, this particular work has been attributed to the Maharal, but it probably was written later. It probably came at the start of the 20th century. That's probably when it was compiled. Uh, and it's also quite possible, this happens often, that Rabbi Yudel Rosenberg 
put some of his own ideas into this text. He does an analysis on the whole first part of Halach Ma'anya. And I invite you, if you want to have some great stuff, this was our idea, right? Like, if you want to dive into this later, Rabbi Kasher and I invite you, take this text sheet, go into it. That's wonderful. It could be your like pardes, get into the soda of it. Bring it to your satyrs and like take it home and, and play with it, or you are at home. Uh, stay at home and play with, play with it for your own satyrs. But we're going to go to the bottom of this text and take a look at a question that so many people have asked about this text, which is about the language of it. In the bottom of this paragraph, oh, Oscar knocked over my Haggadah, hang on. In the bottom of this text, um, we get to this language that's very much in Aramaic and kind of mixed in Hebrew, which is a common rabbinic construct. And we get to this Lashana Haba'a Be'ara de Yisrael Hashta Avde Hashta. We're going to look at it in just a moment. Avde, that's like Avadim. Lashana Haba'a Venechorin. And in the year to come, that's a little bit probably Hebraicized, though they're going to argue differently, these commentators. Venechorin, uh, free folk. So we're going to look at this and I'm going to give you my translation of this and you can make your own and you can chat me if you want to translate it differently. I love that. Hashta, Milashona Talmud, Hashta Itna, Milashona Hashta. They want to let us know that from the language of the Talmud, Hashta or Hashata is a Lashon, it's a language of nowness, immediacy. Okay, like Ata. She'en lomar Hashana, Hacha, Hashana, Avde. You don't want to say Hashanah, and they didn't use the word Hashanah in the first part this year that were that were slaves. She'ulai niske o b'shana hazot lichyot b'nechorin be'eretz Yisrael, because maybe we're still going to have the zuchut this year. Maybe we're still going to marry even in this year. We should hope that we should marry even in this year. Ulfichach hashda ein mashma kolkach. It's really not about Bashana, that meaning of Hashta now. It's not about this year. Ella, it's really about this eight of Atta, about the nowness of it. And so this Aramaic lens, this amazing twist, this amazing ta'am, this, this taste of language of nowness. And so I'm going to use that point to pass this over to Rabbi Kasher and I'll stop the screen share so he can share it on his own if he wishes um, to play with this language some more. Hey everybody. Um, and thanks so much Rabbi Charney for, for uh, starting us off and really starting this topic off. It was, it was Rabbi Charney's uh, idea that we, that we take this dive into the concept of, of Bnei Chorin, of what, what it means to be free people. And, um, and, she brought it up in, in the initial uh, meetings that we had about this uh, this gathering, and and I thought, oh my gosh, that remind. I started to think, well, where does that freedom go? Like, what, what do we? Oh, freedom, right? Freedom. We become free. What happens with that freedom? And the first thing I thought of was this just really beautiful, incredible midrash. One of my one of my favorite midrashim that it's actually it's a midrash that's right in a very kind of um, a, a very primary source right there in the Mishnah in Pirkei Avot, and it is another expression of the freedom that 
the freedom that we are celebrating in the Passover holiday, but but not just the moment of liberation, but where, where that freedom goes. Like, where do we take that freedom in the story? And, and, and when I say where it goes, think about where the children of Israel are going, right? They're leaving Egypt, and where are they going? They're, they're going to Israel, but their next stop is Sinai, right? So here is a, a midrash about the expressions of freedom, of, of being Bnei Chorin at Sinai. So um, take a look here at... Uh, at this at this Mishnah from Pirkei Avot. Okay, so it's a it's a it's a midrash, and by that me I mean there's a certain technique here of uh, Rabbi Turner just used the word playing around, and there's a kind of playing around with the language. So here's the here's the here's the verse they're going to play with. So it says, "And the tablets were the work of God." Okay, that, that's what that was. That's what Moses got. This is Parshat Kitisa, and the tablets were the work, work of God, and the writing was the writing of God inscribed upon the tablets. Moses went up there to the mountain, but God's the one that carved in the, you know, do this and don't do that, right? It was God's writing. Um, and here it is in Hebrew, Vomer, v'haluchot, the tablets, mase Elohim hema. They were the work of God. V'hamichtav, and the writing, michtav Elohim hu. It was the writing of God. Charut alaluchot inscribed upon the tablets. Okay, so it's this word right here, Harut inscribed, that uh, the rabbis are going to play with. Al-tikra Harut. Don't read it as Harut inscribed, Elacherut, but Cherut, freedom. She'ein lacha ben chorin, because there's no free person, and there's their word again. This is what we're becoming, free people. You don't have a free person. There is no free person except the person who labors, who works in the study of Torah. Okay, so don't read it inscribed, charut, read it freedom, charut. Okay, so let's just, for just for a second, just to understand what we're doing here. First of all, just to understand the Midrashic technique, there, this is a classic. They do this sometimes. As they as they sort of play with the language of the Torah, one of their one of their tactics is to revowelize. Okay, so yes, because remember, after after all, the scroll of the Torah is not written with vowels. So they say, yeah, it looks like in context it means inscribed, but if you vowelize it differently, you get the word freedom, and boom, now we've really got some something magical happening, right? Well, what are they saying on 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 some level? They're saying that freedom. Freedom was on the tablets, right? Freedom is, is embedded in the revelation. But, but, okay, so that's like, that's the, that's the linguistic piece. But, okay, what's the message here? Because actually the claim is, is strange. No one is free except for the person who labors, who work, and it's like paradoxical. You're not free unless you labor in the study of Torah. Anyone got a hit on, on what that means? What is it? That doesn't make any sense. You're not free unless you, unless you study the Torah, unless you work hard in studying the Torah. What's the message there? Anyone want, want to offer an interpretation? Because it doesn't make any sense. Like, I, I should be free not to study the Torah. I do whatever I want. Anyone got to read? Noah, what about you? Uh, I'm thinking it's talking about that they were just freed from a narrow place. So it's like expanding your mind. You're free to expand your mind in the realms of Torah and law rather than maintain that narrowness we left Egypt with. 
Good, I love that. So first of all, freedom to learn, freedom to get an ed education, freedom to to develop oneself, but you know, more more broadly, freedom to, as Noah put it, expand your mind. There's something about Torah and the study of the Torah that's that's consciousness expanding. I love that. Let's take one more one more interpret. Anyone else got a got a thought they want to share on this? Uh, I see a hand. Michael Mendelson. Yeah. Hi. Uh, so I would say. If you think about Talmud Torah, it's L'shem Shemaim. It's literally the only purpose is for the heavens, right? So uh, the idea of doing something that's not to build wealth, it's not to feed yourself, it's not for the good of your family, it's just L'shem Shemaim. It's just Lishma. That, that is freedom. That's great, Michael. That's great. Um, first of all, just as an idea, the idea is that I am free of the so the cares and the concerns and the status and all the trappings of this world. And I'm entering into some other realm, a spiritual, but this actually echoes another Mishnah in Pirkei Avot, right? That anyone who removes the, the old, the old shel malchut, the, the yoke of the, of the government, um, um, anyone who takes on the, the yoke of Torah removes from themselves the yoke of government. So some similar idea, maybe we're, we're free from the practical world, the, 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 the world of, 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 of status and worldly concerns, and we're entering into the realm of Torah. Okay, this is great, and we could keep going. There's like, this is a really beautiful idea. There's something liberating about Torah. But there's a problem. There's a problem with this Midrash. There's something wrong with this Midrash. Or, or at least, it's, it's, it's at least if, not, if not something wrong, there's at least something much more radical about it than, than even appears at first, because they're already playing around with the vowels. But there's something, there's actually a problem with their wordplay, because this word here that is at the center of it, don't read inscribed, but read cherut, right? Where is, oh, now I've lost it. Read cherut, okay? That word, where's that word come from, cherut? Oh, I just clicked on it, and, it, and there's a dictionary that pops up on the side, so I, I have some help here. Let's go into the dictionary here. Now, the word engraved, cherut, that's a Hebrew word. Okay, that's good. That we know that that, but the word freedom, cherut, right? Even if you look in this little dictionary here, it is an Aramaic or maybe related to Arabic word. Okay, cherut as a word doesn't appear anywhere in the Torah. Okay, that's not a Hebrew word. Bnei chorin is an Aramaic phrase. Cherut is an Aramaic phrase. Right, so. That means that the Midrash is actually don't read inscribed, don't read this in Hebrew. Read it in Aramaic, right? Read freedom into this, but, by, but do so by importing another language, the language that we speak, not the language that the Torah is, is written, okay? So if you labor in the Torah, you become free. You become so free that you can reread the Torah, that you can re under, that you can re-language the Torah. That's how free you you become is is free to bend the words of the Torah into your own vernacular. That's I mean that almost sounds too free, right? And then the and and the question I mean so okay so you see some of the wildness here, some of the sort of indeterminacy of the of the interpretive technique. But then the question is like, okay, you can do this. Uh, the rabbis think they can do it, but why would they do it? I mean, why would they borrow from Aramaic? A Hebrew is Lashon Kodesh. The Torah is, that's God's language. So 
okay, you're free and you can do what you want. You can interpret anyone you, any way you want. But is the, are these really the rules you want to break? You want to break out of the Hebrew languages? So what's the value of Aramaic? So with that question, I want to hand it back over to my colleague, Rabbi Charney. This is so fun. I almost don't want it to end because it's such a good cliffhanger. Why would you go to Aramaic? It's Lashona Kodesh. Isn't that the language we're supposed to want to do the important things in? Aren't we celebrating freedom? Aren't we embracing Cheirut? But Cheirut isn't even a Hebrew word. Okay, so we're going to end with this other text that I had to learn how to pronounce because it's this text from Bologna in the 16th century, and it's amazing. And it's in Aramaic, so it's very meta. So we're going to pick through it together, just the end of it. Again, if you want to go through the whole thing, have at it. We can cover on it on our own time. But I'm going to share it with you on the screen. And then if we, we can try to leave some time for questions, but we're going to return all together in nine minutes. So I want to I want to keep plowing through this so we can get to the end of our point. Okay, you can put questions in the chat. Maybe I can try to get to them. So here we go. All right. So this is the Kimcha Davshuna which is the 16th century commentary that was, thank goodness, translated by Rabbi Mark Greenspan, sort of picked apart. I say thank goodness because there are also some transcriptional errors. I'm going to point out some of them. I left them in there, but you'll see there are some kind of funky transcriptional errors that are in there. And he tries to figure out explaining the halachic way to conduct a Seder. And in doing so, he answers questions like the one that we've left hanging out there about language and why language in a really interesting way. So we're going to get to the end here when we get to this point about uh, this like freedom and the meta freedom and this meta idea of our wanting that freedom once upon a time in the OG Pesach story, this original story of our wanting freedom from, right, freedom from Paro. And also this reliving experience that we're having at the Seder too. And to bring us back, as I promised you, I would bring us back as well to this idea that every year, of course, we're re-examining what is our Mitzrayim? Where are we in a narrow place? How do we need to experience some sort of chirut, as we now know, an Aramaic word? So this passage why Aramaic? Same question our other commentary, which comes three centuries later, asks. The Yeshmefarshim Lama Omer Beholzo Bilshon Aramit. Yes, there are people who explain why we use this language. Lithi Shehi Lishonam Vehalaz Shalahem Shahare Bavavel Nitkan Uchadeshia Vinu Hanashim Natanisim. There's some funky words in here. Vatiko note, the Ameha Aretz. Pause there for a second. Okay? I want to break this down. There are those who explain that Aramaic is the language that we use because this is the language of them that is the laws, the language that's used in the street, the language used every day, the language that we are sure that everyone understands. Shalahem, who? That it was fixed in Babel. That people would be able to come and hear it. Who are these people? The Nashim, 
the children, the, the women, the children, the Ameha Aretz, the every people, okay? The stand-ins for the every people in society. Why? Shiyavinu, nope, Likayem, um, mitzvot or maybe mitzvot hagada. it's not clear, but like mitzvot vehagada or vehagadot, belashon, sheyihiyu hakol shoma'im. They should be able to fulfill all of the mitzvot and also hear all of the hagado, have all the hagadah in the language that they should all be able to hear it. How can everybody experience all of freedom? What is freedom? But an entirely democratic freedom. There was an understanding even then in rabbinic times that there was an aristocracy to Lashon Kodesh. That's one explanation for it. That it should be the language in which everyone can participate, everyone can understand. The Yeshom Reim. Ah, there's another opinion because, you know. Jews. This is one person's writing. I love that about Jewish text, right? But there are other people who say, so one person, many opinions. There are other people who say something else completely different. Other place, right? Remember that there are different Jewish communities going on at different times, okay? Even post-Talmud. He says in Jerusalem, maybe then, maybe then when he's writing this, they would be Telling, maybe telling the story, Bilashon Simcha Aramit. Aramaic is the story of joy is told in Aramaic. It's the language of joy. Aramaic is the language that you use when you express something perhaps in joy. I loved what Rabbi Kasher said. Sometimes it's good to bring things back that you. Uh, discussed in Chavruta. I love that Rabbi Kasher said when we were studying this together, you know, can you imagine like you go about your everyday trying to speak in one language, but maybe, you know, when you experience like incredible pain or incredible joy, you just sort of find yourself like shouting out in Yiddish or something, right? Like there's just a language that you need to express the most basic and core and soul-wrenching feelings. You express it in that, right? Yeah, the, so, the language, uh, if, I, if I can yeah, tack onto that, the please, language that please, I remember please. from, and I don't remember who it's from. It's like one of the early Israeli kind of pioneer figures, maybe, but it was like someone who was steeped in Hebrew, like Chernikovsky or something like that, but, yeah. but said, uh, said, you know, eating, speaking in the Hebrew is like eating with silverware. But speaking in Yiddish is like eating with your hands, you know? So yes, it's like that kind yes, of freedom. Yes, yes. I'm like, ah, I can really let go, you know? Yes, yes, thank you. Yes, exactly that. That's so much better said than what I just said. Exactly. It's so expressive. It's like, yes, it's like eating with your hands. And so my challenge to us, my thought about this in the year to come is, what do we need to to get to that place of the B'nai Chorin self-expression? What do we need to allow ourselves to express in that place of, 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 of slight sacrilege that's no longer in the space of, you know, Lashon HaKodesh, but that needs to be shouted out and expressed from that place of baseness because it is the Lashon Simcha 
You know, it's the place of expression. Um, and it's just this, this thing that needs to be shouted. Or maybe if you want to take that first read that he makes, and this is so incredible and, and so critical, what is it? Even when we reach, and especially when we reach that place of B'nai Chorin and freedom, that we cannot leave behind us the extraordinary equity that we have achieved in this time of pandemic. We certainly cannot be any less equitable as communities, less accessible as communities than we have become in this time, than when we've begun to pay attention to. If we are being released back out into the world and we are celebrating freedom, it's not right for us to be any less equitable in that celebration of freedom, right? So those are two possible reads for you and reasons to believe deeply and to celebrate that Aramaic that shows up there. But I still give you permission to sing Avadim Ha'inu, Atav Necharin in Hebrew because it's just fun. And maybe like the Mishnah and Tosefta bait us, it's a reason for you to say, aha, but you know, that doesn't actually appear in the Haggadah text. And let me tell you a story about that. And that's what Rabbi Kasher and I wanted to do for you. Wanted to trouble the waters a little bit on that language and encourage you to think a little bit more deeply about that cherut and how it wound up in that Haggadah. Rabbi Kasher, do you have anything else you want to say to these folks before we regroup into communities other than how awesome it's been to be with everybody tonight? Just, you know, just that this is what we're shooting for. This, this, this freedom, this freedom of consciousness, you know, this freedom of speech, this freedom is not, this freedom starts as liberation from physical bondage, but it like, it goes to, it it goes forward and becomes something more, a way of looking at the world, a way of being in the world. And that's, that's what we're striving for as we head towards Passover is that, is that consciousness of, of being B'nai Chorin, of being like really, really free people, free to think, free to, free to speak, free to sing, free to, free to express ourselves. That, that's the kind of full freedom that this, that this initial Yitziah exodus, it was always um, catapulting us towards. So, so may we get there. Yes. Yes. I, I love that. And, and, and to be just conscientious about it the, the whole way through to feel it all the way through and thank you for taking the time to study these holy holy texts with us it's this you know i miss drinking bad coffee with you all but i'm i'm glad um i'm glad that you joined a zoom room to do this with us and thank you rabbi kasher for the time that we got to spend learning these texts it was thank you thanks for the topic thank you all for joining us tonight you have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.